Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Jack Welch, Jeff Bezos, Sam Walton. Who was the greatest CEO of all time? I've decided to throw another name into the hat. His name is the iconic and polarizing personality of Hunter Harrison. Hunter Harrison was the CEO for four different railroads. He orchestrated impressive turnarounds at each stop. I recently finished the book Railroader, the unfiltered genius and controversy of four-time CEO Hunter Harrison by Howard Green. It's a five-star book that I could not put down. I'm thrilled to have Howard on the show to talk about this bigger-than-life CEO where we dive into his personal life, his three-dimensional view of moving boxcars, changing cultures through hunter camps, and just what made him successful. This is CFO Bookshelf, and our interview with Howard Green is coming up next. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, uh, Jack Welch, uh, Howard Schultz, Phil Knight, others, and then there's Hunter Harrison. I'm a little bit embarrassed. The name Hunter Harrison did not ring a bell until I started reading your book. But in my opinion, he ranks right up there with those other CEOs. Agree? Well, you know, I would. Uh, I first of all thank you for for including me in in, in the podcast, Mark. Um, I look the way I would say it is: How many people do you know who have been CEO of four publicly traded companies and turned around four publicly traded companies now? He was a polarizing figure, and we'll get to that and so forth. But the facts on the ground seem to speak for themselves four times. I mean, I can't, you know, Jack Welch wasn't CEO four times. Bill Gates wasn't CEO four times. Now, you know, Gates, Jobs did, you know, unbelievable things. Right. Uh, Welch, I think there's, you know, there's there. There's a kaleidoscope of views on Welch. I just read a book about uh, the decline of GE, Lights Out, an excellent book, uh, and it delves into that. But uh, Howard Schultz, uh, you know, terrific, proven. I've actually interviewed him a few times. Uh, um, But Hunter, four times. I mean, I can't think of anybody who's been CEO of four publicly traded companies with the kind of record that that, uh, those companies have had. I would love to. I would be a, love to be a fly on the wall with you, Howard, talking to Alan Mulally, who once ran one of the divisions of Boeing, and yep. then turned around Ford twice. Now a little bit misleading. He turned around Ford twice while he was still CEO. But I'm going to go back and say what you've somewhat already said. I, I think Hunter may be one of the best CEOs we have ever experienced. Is is that maybe too strong of a statement? Well, I think it's it's um, it's arguable. It's it's it, you can make that argument very convincingly. I think it with Hunter, as I said earlier, he was also a very polarizing figure. So I think it depends on which side of the equation you were on when when it came. Not you know if you were um, if you bought into Hunter's way of doing things and uh, you were willing to learn from him and 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 do it Hunter's way then um, you would believe that. And certainly uh, those who have held shares in the companies that he, that he, um, he ran have done, have done very well. Others who came out on the wrong side of the Hunter equation might have a different viewpoint. I know they do. And it's, um, 
it's a, in many cases, uh, um, an extreme viewpoint um, because, uh, you know, look, he was an, uh, he, he, he felt things very deeply, but he was very unsentimental, unsentimental right. in the way he ran businesses. And, and if you weren't, if you didn't get with the program, you were gone. It was simple as that. Uh, so, you know, while many, many thousands are devotees and, 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 you know, put their kids through college because of their, you know, what they made on the stock or built new houses or whatever, learned and had careers, others, um, you know, fell away uh, and are bitter about it. But I think just on, on the record of the, the performance of, of these companies, I think you can certainly argue that case that you put forward. You've mentioned some strong points of his. What When you were actually, I mean, you got to visit with him uh, near the end. You got to work with him one-to-one. Yeah. Can I ask you, what's one thing that just stood out? I know it may be in the book, but when you look back, I'm sure, you, I'm sure you're saying, Howard, what a great experience I had. Can, can you think of that one or two things that, that meant a lot to you? Yeah, well, so many things, really, Mark. I mean, one, the molecular knowledge of the industry. He, he, he. This is railroads we're talking about. We talk about four companies, but they're railroads. You know, companies that really have their roots in the mid eighteen hundreds or late eighteen hundreds. Old industries, archaic industries. This guy learned from the very bottom, pouring oil into the axles of, uh, of, of rail cars in, in Memphis, starting when he was 19. He'd been a bad kid in Memphis. And, he'd been, you know, this was a personal turnaround as much as corporate turnarounds. He was a bad kid, son of a cop, looking for direction, looking for purpose. And, and he found it uh, in railroads. And not because he was like a train buff or a, a foamer, right. as they, they, they call people who are train buffs. But uh, he thought, this is, this is an industry I can understand. He could see these networks in three dimensions and so forth. He was also an uncompromising person. Uh, he, he believed what he believed. He was, he was fiercely zealous when it came to his beliefs. And, uh, you know, uh, I think he, 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 he just felt a, a deep need to prove himself his whole life, uh, right up until the end, you know, Jeannie, his wife, I remember sitting in the, in the, in the study of their Florida home, which was once owned by the CEO of American express, they had beautiful homes in Connecticut, Florida, horse farms and different places and so forth. And she looked at the wall behind me with the bookcase and the the trophies and the awards. And this is when he was going from Canadian Pacific to CSX. He was very sick. He was on an oxygen tube. You know, when will it ever be enough? Uh, you know, uh, how much more do you need in life? And, 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 you know, we don't need any more money, but he had to keep doing it because it was his identity. He, you know, that was how he, he proved his self-worth argument. I mean, I'm, this is armchair psychology, but maybe trying to prove to the ghost of his, uh, his, um, his late father with whom he, he came into clashes as a youth. They, they reconciled when he got older, but his dad died when he was 32. Didn't see him rise to CEO level, but had a, had a, had a sense that Hunter was really going places. So, and, and I think the other thing is that he was, and this I think differentiates him from, from many because it's a very hard thing to do. He was always willing to do 
the unpopular thing if it if he believed it was the right thing to do for the company for the good of the company as he saw it and so thus the polarization and there was a certain sense because he ran two canadian railroads after he turned around illinois central the historic railroad out of chicago right. down to new orleans canadian national and canada bought it to you know as a nafta railroad after the the trade agreement came in in the in the late 90s to give Sienna a route to uh, a route as you say in the United States um to um to the Gulf of Mexico New Orleans and Hunter came to Canada and and CN had a bad record and um you know turned it around and and it, so i he was very willing to do uh the unpopular thing uh you know he 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 broke a lot of eggs to make the omelet here and then went to cp and that was very unpopular because that's the rival to cn here in canada and you know after he left cn on you know in, in a uh an unfortunate way actually when he when he retired at 65 and and he had a two year non compete he went to cp and 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 that caused big a big stink cn sued him uh, you know this company that he'd worked with. and then you know he left cp after he turned it around and went to csa he and at all these places he clashed whether you know, my my point about coming to canada was that he said to me he thought there was a certain anti-americanism in canada well i guess it, you know, to speak honestly, there probably is a little bit um, because, you know, we feel inferior to you. We're one-tenth your size. You know, everything is Hollywood and fireworks and, and you know, we're the modest little Canadians, you know, beavering away up here in the snow. Um, but but the, the, the truth of the matter was that whole anti-American argument was a red herring because he was just as unpopular in the United States when he worked for the Frisco, his first railroad, which merged with Burlington Northern Santa Fe. He was he moved to a bunch of different places. And his sister Mary worked at the BN as well, Burlington Northern. And and she talked about the guys who were ready to, you know, throw him out the window. You know, it, it was he he was um may I say this? He was known as Seagull, the Seagull. And well, what did that mean? He said that means i i fly in and i shit all over everything and then i take off and 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 he was that way in the united states too when he went to, i saw him do it at csx and he was very unpopular there because of it so he was always willing to do the unpopular thing in order to run the railroad in the way he thought was best very long answer i realized i know one person who liked hunter harrison and it's in the book uh bill gates uh, was it yeah. with the CN or CP where, where he wrote him a note and said, I'm, I'm glad you're CEO. Yeah. And, and, and he, he saw that this guy's a real thing. Well, yeah, because it's, it, it's, um, it is CN Canadian national Bill Gates and Bill Gates um, foundation continue to be the largest shareholders Still. of CN. There, there, there's a legal limit of 15% um, foreign ownership, but and they're right at that as far as I know, or they have been. Uh, so, you know, Bill Gates, billions and billions of dollars of Bill Gates' net worth and his foundation's net worth are tied up in CN. And, uh, you know, so I think mean, he liked Hunter. <laughs> you, you mentioned his father in passing a couple of minutes ago. Can you talk a little bit about that father-son relationship? And the reason I bring that up is I've been listening to the story of the son of the founder of Dick's Sporting uh, Goods. And yep. I, his his first name is Escaping Me. 
but uh, that a very in, intense, tense relationship. Yeah. And I think that's not uh, atypical uh, with some leaders, any, any strong personality. So can you yeah. allude to that just a little bit? Sure. Sure. And that, that, you know, the, the first time we really started to, I mean, I had interviewed him. I had a television interview program in the business channel here in Canada for a long time. And that's where I got to know him. But when we really started to talk about the book, I'd flown down to Connecticut to his horse farm for the day. And, um, we sat for about four or five hours in the living room. And the first thing he taught, started to talk about was his dad after he talked about his health, which was to, in decline, but very soon it, it, it morphed into a discussion about his dad. And I hadn't heard about this before. And his dad, um, was a man who, well, he had been a, um, a, a serious pitching prospect for the majors. And then he went, uh, he was in, in, in the American forces during world war two and he was wounded and his pitching arm was wounded and that whole career possibility went up in smoke and he became kind of a lost soul um, ended up no real ambition Hunter said, although he ended up a cop and apparently a good one um, in Memphis um, but he had very high expectations of Hunter, who was the firstborn. And then a, there were a number of years that went by before four sisters were born. So he was like an only child for a long time. And, and you know, he didn't live up to his dad's expectations. He, you know, he goofed around. He got into trouble, you know, with the cops. Uh, so it was an embarrassment. He got in trouble at school. He was smart. But, like... A lot of these people, their smarts weren't applicable to schoolrooms. They were applicable to the businesses that they ended up running. Like, like Gates was a dropout or, or Jobs. And Jobs, by the way, had, had a very uh, fraught relationship with his father as well, which I bring up in the book, uh, referencing Walter Isaacson's uh, uh, biography of Steve Jobs. And so uh, they came to blows, Hunter and his father, and they came to physical blows, um, which today would be um, characterized uh, in a much different way than it was back then. Hunter was born in 44. So that would have taken place, I guess, in the late fifties or sometime in the fifties and uh, you know, punches in the mouth or hitting the head with a broom and drawing blood and not nice stuff. And Hunter kind of brushed it off. You know, that was what was done those in those days. And uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, you turned a blind eye to it if you were other members of the family. Um, but eventually, uh, he, he, um, what's the word uh, redeemed himself in his father's eyes because he started to make something of himself. Once, you know, he and Jeannie were teenagers, late teens when they had the first child Libby. And, um, you know, it was at that point that Hunter, felt, you know, to use his term, I had to man up because, you know, all of a sudden there was a baby involved. It wasn't just him. And, and then he got serious about railroading and being a family man. And I think, you know, because of that over time, he, you know, he and his dad made up and, uh, he said there was no one he admired more than his father in certain ways. And there were photographs of him, you know, in this pitching uniform and in a Jeep during the war in, in Hunter's office uh, 
in his Florida home, I think probably in the Connecticut home as well. So they did patch it up, uh, but it was a fraught relationship. And I think it, it remained a, a demon for him until the day he died. I work with a fair amount of CEOs going back 20, 25 years. And I'm always looking for that burning bush moment. It could have happened early in life. It could happen once they jumped into their career or that moment of epiphany. Now, I have a couple of theories, but I wanted to ask you, the biographer, what was that burning bush moment? And it could have been more than one. Do do you have some thoughts there? Certainly one that comes to my mind was, you know, when he had that low-level job, entry-level job uh, in Memphis on the Frisco Railroad, he was working with an old character named Zoomer, who, you know, who slept in the shack and stuff, and they had to inspect trains when they came through, and 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 it required each walking different sides of the train, making sure it was okay before it left left for the next terminal. And uh, uh, you know, Zoomer was asleep, I think, if I remember the story. And and Hunter said, "Well, we we got to inspect the train." Well, did you inspect your side? Yes, sir. Well, I ain't never seen you know a train with one side make it you know to the next terminal or whatever the uh the, the story was it was going somewhere in mississippi or louisiana right, or something right. like that and, and and so it was an epiphany for hunter because he thought you know uh the company's paying us to do a job and somebody else said to him you know what you got to realize hunter is that no matter what you do sweeping driving inspecting it all pays the same and it, it, there was this sort of laissez-faire, screw-it attitude. Um, railroads were not economically competitive in those days. The, the law changed in the early 80s, and then they were, you know, things, pricing and so forth evolved, um, and they became profitable companies again. But uh, at the time, they, they didn't really care, and 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 that that imprinted heavily on Hunter. He had a very he had a strong moral sense, perhaps from his parents uh, who were religious. Um, his father was a lay preacher. One of his sisters is a preacher, uh, Diane, and uh, Hunter learned to preach. He really you know he could hold a room like nobody I've ever seen including a, a Bill Clinton or a Barack Obama, as good a public speaker as either of those people. Maybe better. Didn't use a teleprompter. And, uh, you know, so I think that imprinted very heavily on him. And he thought, you know, I, and he admitted to it. He said, when I became a supervisor, I'm going to be a taskmaster because the company's paying and you're going to work those eight hours that the company's paying you. And he, he created a lot of static when he came here to Canada at CN uh, because of that. I my So my two theories, and, and push back if you want to, and, sure. I, and I think it's an important question for CEOs or, or people who want to be or aspire to be CEO. I, I would say one of the, one of those moments of epiphany, I think maybe took over time, but help me with the name. Was it Thompson, one of his old yeah. bosses? Bill Thompson. Mentor. I, w- I would call him really, whether he called him his mentor or not, I he think he listened a lot to him yes. and then he was able to articulate what maybe he could not do. And that's the precision railroading system. No, I think you're, I think you're spot on, you know, after Hunter had those um, revelations that I just talked about, then uh, Bill Thompson 
you know, a few years later entered the picture and he was this rough, tough John Wayne type figure, you know, scared the hell out of everybody, carried a pistol sometimes. And there's a funny story in the book about that. But, but, um, you know, he was an operator and Hunter learned from, you know, he had progressed to a certain level on his own, you know, working in the the tower, like the air traffic control tower railroad. He, he had this uncanny ability to move box thousands of box cars, which is like hot, you know, three dimension checkers, right? Not chess. He said, because chess takes too, too long, had to be fast. And, and Thompson entered the picture rough, tough character. And uh, his nickname, by the way, it wasn't just Bill Thompson. It was pisser Bill Thompson. And people have to read the book to get that right. The meaning there, but you're right. um, That guy imprinted very heavily. That was another burning bush period. I would say not moment, but period for Hunter when he, you know, he, he learned from somebody who was much better than him at that point uh, about how to run a railroad effectively and and the roots of precision scheduled railroading come from those encounters and and a few other people that he met along the way he never claimed to be the author or the the sole father of it but i think he became the grand articulator of it uh and and he became most closely associated with it because he was able to over time articulate it and spread the gospel throughout organizations about this philosophy for running railroads that and, people like Thompson and others uh, and, and were, what, were thinking about. And whether you did this unwittingly or not, and well, you had to bring it up, but I may say her name wrong. Uh, Sue, is it Wraith or Wraithy? It's, it's Rathy. Rathy. Yeah, Sue Rathy. Yeah. I would say that is the next point where this big aha, because she's bringing him reports, if I'm yeah. reading the story correctly. Yeah. And he starts asking, well, can you do this? Can we do that? And she says, give me a couple of weeks. And yeah. I think I think just bringing in technology and good reporting, I yeah. think that's where his work really began to take off. Right. Well, yeah, it brought the really brought the precision to the table um, through technology, and this was in the eighties. Sue had been a a key punch operator in the early seventies, and, and my editor Amanda in Vancouver said, "What's a key punch?" She's in her late thirties and had never heard of it, so I had to put a footnote in the book. <laughs> but Sue, it was a computer programmer, brilliant woman, lovely person, uh, very generous with her thoughts during interviews with me, and. Uh, you know, Hunter really glommed on to to what she could offer at at uh, Burlington Northern, and then later at Illinois Central. And you know, he became a hound for data. You know, he wanted to know how everything was moving, and they were using algorithms and everything. Now, now we talk about algorithms as though they're a new thing. You know, with Facebook and so forth, but they were using them then in the eighties for for uh, planning. Um, boxcar trips and so forth. And, 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 you know, he couldn't use a PC, a personal computer very well at all, resisted it, smartphones, you know, he, he's kind of a Luddite when it came to technology, but he loved the data as long as somebody else provided it for him. And Sue Rathy was one of those people who provided it and brought a lot to the table as far as uh, precision, very unusual situation because railroads were very much, as I said in the book, male layers, militaristic kind of places in those days. Now there is a female CEO of a big railroad burned uh, in Northern Santa Fe just recently. Time is going fast. So I need yeah. to jump ahead. You sure. got to meet uh, Hunter Harrison later in life. 
does that mean you did not get to go to one of his hunter camps? Did you get to? I did. Oh, you did. Well, yeah, yeah. First of all, we may have to explain what a hunter camp is, but yeah, sure. What was it like? So um, these started at CN, and there were really part a side of him that was fascinating, the mentoring side. He was a he was a teacher in many respects, and he wanted people to learn, and he he would spend time with you if you showed the initiative that you wanted to learn. And at CN, they had to try to change the culture because it had been a government-owned organization and so forth previously. And 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 so, um, and they didn't know about precision railroading. And, and so these were weekend retreats and they put thousands of people through them over the course of Hunter's tenure there. And he would just get up and preach to these people without notes for like 20 hours at luxurious resorts, like the breakers in Palm beach, Florida, he treated everybody really well, special, made them feel special. Like they'd been plucked out as potential leaders. And so they were mid-level people. And, and they, they got the gospel from Hunter on railroading and leadership. And, and he didn't do it at CP because he came in fast under a proxy fight and had a compressed amount of time, but he started to do it at CSX the last railroad he ran. And I attended one of those. I had viewed on DVD, the ones at CN uh, and quote from them in, uh, in the book, but I actually went to one, the last one he did at CSX, he did four and he was on an oxygen tube because he had a, many health problems. Right. I list them in the book. One of which was seriously compromised lung disease uh, situation, which required oxygen. And he spoke still plugged into that oxygen machine for five, six hours that day at the breakers in a big chair up front and growling and making jokes. And he was very, very funny in many ways, extremely charming. And it could be intimidating, but also funny and charming. And people got so much out of these things. They couldn't believe they were this close to a CEO. They'd never been that close to a CEO or treated that way. And these things became legendary, but then he, he, that that day I had my last interview with him after, and he died 10 days later. Um, so uh, it was, it's a quite, it's quite vivid in my mind. And it was a profound moment. Uh, he knew what was coming for him personally. And uh, this big rough, tough guy uh, in that last conversation, you know, he, he broke down um, and, and uh, cried Um and I'd never seen that. And we had many, many intimate moments, uh, but that was uh, the last one, ironically. Uh, and uh, so uh, since then, many other railroads, class one railroads have, have adopted precision scheduled railroading with different results, but, but he lives on uh, through those, uh, you know, as, as, as something of a legend in the industry. May I ask you two more questions? Again, yeah. I appreciate this time. You are now on my radar. I love the book. Great book. Thanks. What should I read next of yours? Oh, my. <laughs> I know, I know, I know you're, I, I can tell you're, you're a man of humility and it's probably not the right question, but I want to know what, what can I read next of yours? Well, uh, my first one was called Banking on America about TD Bank, which expanded, you know, you've heard TD Ameritrade and right. the TD is the Toronto Dominion Bank really is the, is the actual. Did not know that. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, they expanded big time down the Eastern seaboard from Maine to Florida in the last number of years. And um, they're now a pretty big bank in the United States. And that was my first book. Uh, that's, that's 
get, you know, it's a little old now. It's maybe 10 years old, uh, but the, the story remains. And it's really about the strategy of how, not about a big boring bank, but about the people who made this happen. It was kind of a collision of a high school dropout and a Harvard PhD and, and, you know, all sorts of entrepreneurial moves in between quite, quite interesting to me, uh, you know, uh, but uh, my second book was uh, the memoir of Charles Bronfman, the heir to the Seagram whiskey fortune. I bought uh, that, by the way. I bought it. I haven't thank started. Thank you. So that one is written in, in a different voice. The TD book and, and Railroader, the one we've been talking about, about Hunter, were written third person, reported books, uh, distilled the, the Bronfman book. I wrote that in Charles's voice as his memoir. And that's a whole other story. You know, it's really about a family pathology and the patterns in the family that led to this incredible company disappearing uh, because of, you know, generational change. And, 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 uh, and then of course he, he had to find himself in different ways through his philanthropy and so forth. And uh, so, um, and now, you know, I'm trying to figure out, I, I have a new one that's in the drawer. It's not quite ready to go, but I, I'm also, you know, trying to develop an outline for a new one. I'm not sure whether it will, I'd say it has 50, 50 odds of, going somewhere. What I really would like, and I'm pursuing it, is to have somebody produce Railroad or the Hunter Harrison story as a movie or a Netflix or Prime series. And I'm sort of naively pushing that <laughs> out to to various uh, uh, movie people. And, uh, you know, I have a list of people who I think should play Hunter and other people in the book. And, and, uh, so, you know, who knows? It's a, you know, it's, it's like playing the, the lottery uh, when you work with the movie business. So, but it's, it's fun to try. Cause I think I can see it as a movie. I just I see it. And I've actually, I've, I've written the screenplay. It would be so good. If, if, if anybody listening wants to buy it or buy the rights to the book, tell them to get in oh touch. Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> anything I could do to help. Wow. I, 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 that, I hope that happens. Last question. We ask this question to every author who, who comes yeah, on. Sure. Can, we, can we ask, what are some of your favorite books to read? It can be books that are memorable, that have made a difference, that you gift to others. What, what are some that yeah. stand out? Oh, my gosh. Uh, so many. We get that answer uh, a lot. I'll, I'll, gi- I'll give you one. And it's, a, it, it's an old book. It was written in the early 80s by Robert McNeil, who... Uh, you may remember PBS NewsHour. Yes. It was originally the McNeil Lair NewsHour. So Robert McNeil, or Robin as he's often known, he's in his late 80s now, but he's a Canadian and and he grew up in the same town I did, Halifax in Nova Scotia. And uh, I got to know Robin a little bit. I, my wife and I lived in New York City in 0607 and met him there and every now and then we email but but he he wrote a book in 1981 called Right Place, Right Time, which is about his career. And, and it really is all the chapters connect back to being in the right place at the right time. And he's an absolutely beautiful writer. You know, he was in Dallas when Kennedy was shot and he rushed into the Texas book depository looking for a payphone. And this guy, he, he said to some guy on his way out, um, uh, uh, where's the payphone? And the, the guy pointed over there. And later, when people put together the events and who was coming and going, 
the author William Manchester, that he, he bumped into Lee Harvey Oswald. That was Lee Harvey Oswald walking out of the building. And Oswald thought he was a secret, McNeil was a secret service agent. But Robin, I asked, and, and he said this, and I, I asked him in an interview, he has no memory of the, the person's face. He says it's titillating, but I don't remember the face, so he can't prove it was Oswald. But anyway, the book's all like, you know, that kind of stuff, the Berlin Wall, Nixon, Barry Goldwater. You know, it's really, really interesting book, very well written. Right Place, Right Time. I think it's 1981, Robert McNeil. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Howard Green, again, thank you for your time. Great book. It's Row Rotor, the unfiltered genius and controversy of four-time CEO Hunter Harrison. Now, I'm curious why more consultants have not glommed onto this book, picking out some of the great tools Hunter created uh, to develop the success at the railroads he ran. You've already heard Howard talk about the Hunter camps, but what drove those camps? We didn't dive too much into precision railroad scheduling, not only was he a proponent of it, he articulated and perfected the framework, which led to getting shipments on time to customers with outstanding customer service, which also led to driving down operating costs. And by the way, there's another side of Harrison we see in the book. Harrison took care of the people he cared about, and I'm not just talking about family members. He was a very generous person, even though he was not, he was not an easy person to work for. Again, I highly recommend the book, especially if you like books on business history and CEOs. We're going to call this a wrap. Keep learning, keep growing, keep making a difference. I'm Mark Gandy with CFO Bookshelf.